Now turn with me, please, once again in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians 4. I want to speak to you this morning about unity. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and then chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and then we'll pray and ask for God's blessing. Now unto him, Ephesians 3.20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Dear God, thank you for your holy word. Pray that you would break the truth to us and by the Holy Spirit write it on our hearts. We have no power to bring your word with effectiveness. Only you can do that. We pray since you know everybody here completely and thoroughly, you see us for what we really are. You know us as we truly are. We pray that you, the living God, who sees all of our hearts, would speak to us this morning in your holy word and that you would glorify your name for you are worthy and that you would receive the glory in amazing grace, church, and in every true church in every generation until Jesus comes. This is our desire. We want our church to glorify you. We pray that you will send the Holy Spirit and bless your word to that end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul in verses 1 to 16 of Chapter 4 begins to trace out how a church glorifies God and how the churches glorify God in every generation until the second coming of Christ. And first and foremost, he addresses the issue of spiritual unity, the unity of the spirit. Now, we should be thankful for unity. And he says, diligent to preserve it. And if we are to do that, then we must understand what holds the unity of the Spirit together and what threatens it and threatens to destroy it and to bring disunity to the society of God's people. Because Jesus said, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
and that pertains to political as well as ecclesiastical houses. The Holy Spirit creates this unity. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is held together by peace. And yet this doesn't justify taking it for granted. As Christians, we have responsibility with regard to this unity that the Holy Spirit creates. And there's a tension. He creates it. And yet we must labor to preserve it. So are we to do it in our own strength? Absolutely not. But in order diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit, we depend totally on the strength and power of God. He says, according to his power, that works in us. Our diligence, working it out, is the fruit of him working in us with incomprehensible power for his glory. God is glorified when a church and the churches preserve spiritual unity. Division and strife and schisms and railing and hatred and grudges in a church and among the churches, these things dishonor God. And dear brothers and sisters, if we want to glorify God in our church, we need to do our best to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at the attitude with which Paul addresses this. He doesn't point a bony finger at the people and say, you people! That's not his spirit. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you. He speaks to the people with a voice of entreaty out of a motive of love and a desire for God to be honored in God's house. And it's with that demeanor that I speak to you this morning. He wants them to live up to, to walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called. He says, you've been given a great privilege. You've experienced a calling, a divine vocation. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's redeemed you. We, we just took the symbol of that redemption this morning which is the Lord's Supper, signifying that he called us out of darkness to light through the precious blood and broken body of Jesus. What a great privilege he's given us. It's a special calling. It's a unique calling. It's a holy calling. It's a blessed calling to be redeemed by Jesus and given the Holy Spirit and the hope of glory. What a blessing. What a wonderful thing God has done for us. And he says, we need to walk worthily of that calling. We need to behave in our lifestyle in a manner consistent with the wonderful blessing and privilege given to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, lest anybody get the wrong idea, my reason for addressing this subject in Amazing Grace Church this morning had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with a confirmation vote that focused on me. 
Absolutely not. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Has to do with something far more important than something like that. In fact, I, I, I put in my notes when I thought that vote was going to be today for comments I might make after the vote, depending how it goes. And uh, there's a story I'll tell you about confirmation votes, because this would have been, in my lifetime, the 10th confirmation vote that I would have experienced. I got a bunch of stories about confirmation votes, but not now, not today. God willing, two weeks from now and after the vote. Not before, after. But anyway, this is not about a confirmation vote, good grief. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is about the fact that Christians, in a society so deeply divided and filled with hate and the most condemning, ugly, vicious language toward other people. I mean, I have never in my lifetime, I admit I'm only 72, but I've never in my lifetime ever witnessed the kind of vindictive, hateful speech and divisiveness that is in our society. And my concern, dear brothers and sisters, is that in a society so uniquely filled with hate, uniquely, I mean, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it. Have you ever seen anything like it? The kind of hate and violence over political issues that exists in our society, never seen anything like it. And my concern, and this is what's motivating a confirmation vote, good grief. This is about the fact that Christians need to love each other. And we need to be unified with each other. We need to have spiritual unity, not based on political affiliation, folks, but based on the blood of Jesus, on redemption in Christ, and on the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. That's what I want to say, and that's why I want to say it. Are we clear? That's also why I made a point of calling brother... I, won't, I shouldn't mention it over the, uh, on, the, on a recording, what his name is. You know. But uh, calling a brother in downtown... An inner city <laughs> in another state. <laughs> uh, I didn't ask him when I called him to pray for him, what political party do you belong to? And ask him that. And then say, you know, if, if you're going to be a Christian and we're going to pray for you, you need to belong to the right political party. Or we don't. You know, I forgot to say that to him this morning. And I hope that we would forget to say that to anybody who wanted to join our church. And I hope that our, our church would not be unified by a political party, but by the Holy Spirit. That's why I want to speak about it this morning. The unity, beloved brothers and sisters, that we must diligently preserve is not political unity. It is spiritual unity. 
It's the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that we must, by God's grace, give diligence to preserve. And I entreat you. I can't say I'm a prisoner, at least not today, but I, I, I can't say I'm a prisoner of the Lord, but I'm a servant of the Lord. And I entreat you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ that you give diligence in the power of the Holy Spirit to preserve spiritual unity with every other Christian who has the Holy Spirit in our society and around the world. That's the burden with which I speak this morning. Now, the scripture, and again, this could take forever, but I don't intend it to. I have a little extra time because the vote got put off for two weeks. So you never know what might happen there. I might wind up preaching too long, but it, it is what it is. In any event, this, the scripture associates this spiritual unity with three things. Okay? And of course, given the influence of my grandson upon me, I have to have them all start with the same letter. Don't ask me why. But the first one is character. The second one is conversion. And the third one is creed. So, spiritual unity is held together by godly character, genuine conversion, and gospel creed. He talks about the Christian and godly character that cements the unity of the Spirit in verses 1 and 2. Then he talks about how spiritual unity is cemented by genuine conversion in verses 4 to 6. But the third and final thing that holds the unity of the Spirit, the pillar on which it rests, is sound doctrine, a gospel creed that God's people all Believe, And he addresses that in verses 7 through 16. So now what I want to give you this morning is an overview and then drive home practical applications of unity. First of all, unity depends on, rests on, necessitates godly character. Look how he puts it. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Forgive me, I'm going to do it again. Lowliness, long suffering, love. Lowliness, long suffering, love. Those essential aspects of godly character that preserve the unity of the spirit, lowliness, long-suffering, love. The opposite of lowliness, pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, love of preeminence. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 says, by pride comes only contention. By pride comes only contention. If you want to maintain spiritual unity in the bond of peace, we must walk with lowliness. We must mortify remaining carnal pride in our hearts. 
self-righteousness, thinking ourselves better than others. Arrogance that will not listen and learn from others. The kind of arrogance that when somebody else is talking to say something, you interrupt them and try to shut them up and, 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 and shout them down. That kind of arrogance produces division, contention, not unity. Arrogance, pride, divides, lowliness, unifies. First, again, long-suffering. Long-suffering is an attitude of having not a short fuse and a quick temper that blows off at the smallest thing, but that endures wrongs patiently. A, a long fuse, literally, that doesn't blow up over every petty insult wrong or harm. Not an angry person whose life is characterized, whose mouth is characterized, whose heart is characterized by anger and wrath and vengeance and vindictiveness. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a wrathful man stirs up contention, but he that is Slow to anger, that is long-suffering, appeases strife. And again, Proverbs 29, 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a wrathful man abounds in transgression. An angry man, a wrathful man, a soul full of carnal anger and Bitterness and vengeance. You know, it doesn't take any great skill to divide a church. I mean, any idiot can do it. You don't have to have a whole lot of experience. All you have to have is an arrogant, angry heart. A heart filled with a judgmental spirit a vengeful spirit, an arrogant spirit. That's all it takes. Lowliness and long-suffering unify. Arrogance and carnal anger and vengeance and bitterness and vindictiveness, these things divide the church. And finally, he says love. He says, forbearing one another in love. Now, I can't even begin to imagine what possible faults I could have that would make you have to forbear me. No, I'm not arrogant. No, not me. I'm not blind to my own faults. No, not me. Oh, no, not me. But the point is, brothers and sisters, that we need to forbear one another hate to inform you this, Greg, but you have your faults and they annoy people. You know what? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not the only one with annoying faults. We all have them. And we have to forbear one another. 
When people really get to know each other, they find out, you know what? You're not perfect. No kidding. You know what? I'm not either. We have to forbear one another's faults. In love. Proverb again says this. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all transgressions. Disaffection. Ill will. Malice. Divides and destroys churches. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears the faults of others. Lowliness, long-suffering, and love. This is what preserves spiritual unity in the church. Arrogance, carnal anger, bitterness, vengeance, disaffection, malice, hate. These things divide churches. So brothers and sisters, if you want to give diligence to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace within our church and between our church and other churches, dear brothers and sisters, I entreat you. Put on lowliness, long-suffering, and love. Put off arrogance, carnal pride, carnal anger, vindictiveness, vengeance, malice, and hate. Get them out of here. Keep them out of here. Don't ever let them in here. And don't let them get in your hearts with regard to the way that you respond to and think about or talk about other Christians. So that's the first thing. The first thing is godly character is essential for unity of the spirit. Secondly, not only does he identify keeping the unity of the spirit with godly character, lowliness, long-suffering, and love, he also identifies it with genuine conversion. See how he puts it. He says, there is one body and one spirit even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can anybody mistake the idea that he's still speaking about unity and about what preserves the unity of the Spirit when he keeps saying over and over, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And I mean, over and over and over, guess what he's talking about? He's talking about the fact that spiritual unity is preserved by genuine conversion. Let me put it differently. You cannot have unity between sheep and goats. You cannot have unity between wolves and sheep. You cannot have unity between the wicked and the righteous in the church. The wicked have no place in the church. In order to have unity, the church has to be composed only of those that are genuinely converted and united to Christ. What unity does light have with darkness? What unity do the children of the devil have with the children of God? 
What unity do unbelievers have with believers? What unity do those with evil hearts have with those with good hearts? You can't do it. You cannot maintain unity when you have together in one and the same church the righteous and the wicked. The wicked have no place in the church. They may come into the church and they may infiltrate the church. But they have no right there. And when they do infiltrate the church, they cause all kinds of trouble, just like Judas did. But he speaks about one spirit and being effectually called with one hope of our calling. That unity comes when all of those who are in the church have experienced regeneration by the Holy Spirit who took out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh and gave them a good and honest heart. You can only have unity with those who have experienced by the Holy Spirit genuine, true conversion and moral renewal. Secondly, he says, one Lord, one faith. Unity comes by all of those that are genuinely converted, confessing, saving faith in Jesus Christ and making a public commitment to him when they confess that faith in the ordinance of baptism. And so unity comes when all of the members of the church trust in Jesus Christ, call upon him alone to save them from their sins. You can't have unity between those who have saving faith in Christ and those who don't. And furthermore, thirdly and finally, there's one God and Father, he says, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity comes when all of the church members have the Holy Spirit in their hearts by which they cry, Father, Father, Father. They have communion with God. They all have the same Holy Spirit in their heart. They all have the same disposition of being God's children who love him and commune with him and know him. And walk with him. One God and Father of all who's through all, in all. And, and, and he all know him and he knows them. And they love him and they commune with him. You can't have spiritual unity without genuine conversion. Just like godly character is essential. So genuine conversion is essential to maintain the unity of the spirit. In the bond of peace. Do you see it in the text, folks? It's clear, isn't it? But, you know, if that's all that we needed, was just acting nice, being gracious, godly character. Now, I'm not minimizing it. He puts it first. And genuine conversion, I'm not minimizing that. He puts it second. But if that's all we needed to have unity, spiritual unity, this paragraph would have stopped at verse 6. It wouldn't go all the way to verse 16. You see, dear people, there's more required to maintain spiritual unity than just genuine conversion and godly character. Now, I'm not minimizing those things by saying that. I, I acknowledge 
that first and foremost, you need godly character. And essentially, secondly, you need genuine conversion. And you can't leave those things out. And without them, you're never going to maintain spiritual unity. But he didn't say, period, full stop, end of paragraph at the end of verse 6. He wrote a whole lot more. Because there's one other thing that is absolutely essential to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, and that is a gospel creed to which we all agree. He says in verse 7, but to each of us was grace given according to the gift of Christ. Then he expands on that in verse 8 and follow. I'm not going to get into that because that's not the main point. I want to focus on the main point. And he talks about giving uh, gospel ministers to the church. And after he talks about those that were associated with the foundation of the church in the apostolic generation, he concludes with those that are in the church in every generation, pastors and teachers. And he says, why the exalted risen Christ gives gifts to his church in every generation. The pastors and teachers are given by Christ in every generation. Why? For the bringing of the saints to spiritual maturity, to the work of ministry, and to edifying the church, the body of Christ. For what end, observe, has to do with creed, till we all attain to the unity of, of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a full-grown man. Spiritual Christian maturity associated with being rooted and grounded in the sound doctrine. Now, Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples, baptizing them. So in the church, you don't, say you can't become a member until you've already been rooted and grounded in all the sound doctrines of the Christian faith. Because this is what Jesus said in the Great Commission. He said, make disciples, baptizing them, and then he said, teaching them to observe all things. He didn't say, make disciples, and teach them first to observe all things, then baptize them and add them to the church. That's not what he said. He said, you make disciples and you baptize them. And then when they're in the church, you teach them all things. So being fully grounded and spiritually mature is not necessary to be genuinely converted or to becoming a disciple and being baptized and joining the church. However, when you are baptized and publicly confess your faith in Christ, if it's done biblically according to the way Jesus said to do it, you are making a commitment. That commitment of discipleship means that you are making a commitment and the church is making a commitment. And that commitment is to ground you in the sound doctrines of the Christian faith teaching them all things, comprehensive instruction in the faith of Jesus Christ, all things, comprehensive instruction. And you are making a commitment with discipleship to receive that comprehensive 
instruction in the Christian faith. It is not sound doctrine that divides God's people. Error divides. Look what he says. He goes on to say, till we all attain the unity of the faith, verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a full-grown man, Christian maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children, verse 14, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking truth in love, may grow up in all things. People have said, in fact, they've said it till they are blue in the face, and I'm blue in the ears listening to it. Doctrine divides, love unifies. As though there is some enmity enmity between doctrine, truth, and love. That's not biblical thinking. It's not doctrine that divides, folks. It's false doctrine that divides. And it's also speaking truth with a malicious, vindictive, hateful, divisive heart and mouth. doesn't say that truth unifies no matter how you present it. It says speaking truth in love. Truth is not the enemy of love. Truth and love are the best of friends. Error divides the church. False doctrine divides the church. Deceitful, lying teachers divide the church. Craftiness, the wiles of error. That's what divides the church. The gospel creed, the sound doctrine of the Christian faith. This is what unifies God's people. When we are rooted and grounded in the comprehensive sound doctrine of the Christian faith. A commitment to that grounding, by the way, every Christian makes when they become a disciple of Christ, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them all things. The church has a commitment to a disciple to ground them in the Christian faith. Disciple has a commitment to receive that comprehensive instruction. And that grounding in the Christian faith, the truth, that's what brings disciples to Christian maturity, and that's what unifies the church. When the truth is spoken in love, the church is unified. When error is presented, or when truth is presented with a hateful spirit, the church is divided. And God's people are divided and ripped apart. So the third thing that unifies and is essential for the maintenance of spiritual unity is the gospel creed, the sound doctrine of the Christian faith. And all of us 
coming to the unity of the faith. And that's why when we do membership interviews for this church, we have a creed, which is a summary. It's not inspired like the Bible, but it's a summary of the things most surely believed among us. And we ask people that want to become members of the church to read that confession of faith. Now, we don't ask them to expound it. We don't ask them to be able to explain all the ins and outs of it. We simply ask them whether there's any areas where you strongly disagree with anything that's written there. And then if there is something you strongly disagree with, we want to talk about it and how you handle it because if somebody goes around the church promoting error in the church or promoting views that are different than the views that we hold, that's a very divisive thing for people to do. And we don't want people doing that because it's divisive and inappropriate. So we don't expect everybody to be a theologian fully cognizant of all the implications and details of everything written in our, in our gospel creed. No. But we understand that when you become a Christian and when you become a disciple, you are making a commitment to be instructed comprehensively in the Christian faith, and the church is making the same commitment to instruct you. And that instruction is a very important thing because along with genuine conversion and godly character, it's essential to maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Does that make sense? So you see these three things that are associated with maintaining spiritual unity, godly character, genuine conversion, and the gospel creed. So let me, by way of application, you can't have unity of truth and error. It doesn't work. You can't have unity with the wicked and the righteous. It doesn't work. You can't have unity when people are running around filled with pride and carnal anger and malice. That is not going to work. What's essential for unity is godly character, lowliness, long-suffering, and love. Genuine conversion and God's people being grounded in a gospel creed. The church of Christ cannot stand without unity because a house divided against itself cannot stand. Local churches have been decimated and destroyed by disunity and schism and hate. An ugliness manifested in business meetings. We need to work hard to maintain spiritual unity. Thankfully, we've had great unity as far as I know in Amazing Grace Church. I, I'm not aware of any particular threats to our unity. That's not what uh, caused me to rise this morning to address this issue. But I am aware at least I believe there is a great threat to the unity of Christians in our society. I didn't live 160 years ago, though some of you may find that hard to believe. But 160 years ago, Christian church in this society 
was radically divided and ripped apart. And professing Christians living in this land actually shot at each other and killed each other. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? Talking about what some people call the Civil War and other people to this day call, quote, the War of Northern Aggression, end quote. Not here in New York. Christians took out guns and shot at each other and killed each other. Shed each other's blood for political purposes and political ends. I don't want to ever witness that with my own eyes and hear it with my own ears. And yet I'm concerned that the kind of language and the disposition that I see being expressed in our society is so filled with hate and rancor that we need to give diligence. Dear people, we need to give diligence. I entreat you to give diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with every other Christian brother, no matter what, and sister, no matter what their political affiliation may be. We can not hate other Christians. It's morally wrong. It's unacceptable to Jesus. We must love every other Christian, and our love to Christians must serve as an example and as a means to show our society so filled with vitriolic hate how to love each other in Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, if we're not examples of this, who will be? Where will they see it? Where will they learn it? If they don't see Christians loving each other, where, where, where will our society ever learn to put down its hate and love. First and foremost, if we want to glorify God in our church, we need to give diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not just in amazing grace, between amazing grace and every other genuine church of Christians on the face of the earth. Dear people, may God be pleased to bless his holy word to that end. And before I leave, I just want to say to you, you know, we, we, we would love to be unified with everyone in this room, but I'm not sure that we are. I don't know that everybody here is in a state of grace. But we can have unity. I'm not saying we hate you if you're unconverted. Of course not. We were once just like that. We're no better than you. But God had mercy on us. And he is willing to have mercy on you too. Jesus says, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast him.
Come to him. Call upon him. He will save you. He will deliver you. He will redeem you. Just like he had mercy on us. I'm going to say it again. And I hope you'll be long-suffering with me. Christianity is not for good people who never did anything wrong. Christianity is for bad people who deserve to go to hell. It's for sinners. Christ is for sinners. Call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on his name will be saved.